HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Zoop, good, really good, which makes flavor-forward broths, super premium soups, and gourmet broth concentrates, all in glass jars. For more information, visit www.zoopbroth.com. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. Coming up on this hour of the show, we are delving into an emerging trend that combines food and mental wellness. Meet Michigan-based clinical social worker Julie Ohana and Ontario-Canada-based social worker Courtney Fields-Futurelli as they discuss how they both use food as part of their therapeutic behavioral health practices. Julie, thank you for joining the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, this, as you know, is a uh, an issue near and dear to my heart. My listeners might not know that I am also a licensed social worker in the state of Ohio. I have been since 2014. I keep my license up. Um, I worked very hard for it, and and um, you know, social workers do very very important work. Uh, and and you work in the clinical space. Uh, tell our listeners about. Um, just a little bit about your background and how long you've been practicing and, and what brought you to the space of social work. Absolutely. So I have had my degree for about 20 years now. And actually, when I was in graduate school uh, in, in New York City in the early 2000s, I had to write a master's thesis. And I just knew that immediately that I was going to write about the benefits of cooking and how healing uh, being in the kitchen and time spent with other people in the kitchen, time on your own in the kitchen, really how therapeutic it can be and such a benefit to our mental health. So I wrote my thesis um, in, I think it was 2003, and it has been an evolution ever since. Um, it has always been a part of my practice, but really it's the last few years that I've dedicated my entire practice uh, to culinary art therapy and it's just fascinating to kind of follow along how the world of therapy has evolved over the last couple of decades. Like everything else in the world, things change and come and go and we make progress. And I think this field is really uh, no different. So, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, your passion for, you know, food and connecting food to, to healing and to improving mental health was something that dated back all the way to grad school. How does, you know, how does that research look back then when you reflect on it, you know, 20 odd years ago? And and how does that compare to, you know, how things look now? Right. So doing research 20 years ago was a very different experience than doing research today. Um, so really that probably the, the biggest thing that stands out is just how that process looked like. And really what I found was there are organizations throughout the world that were doing this kind of work without calling it this kind of work. I don't mm -hmm. know that they had the words to be able to say culinary art therapy or even really realize the clinical benefits of cooking, but mm -hmm. they knew that doing something in that space felt good and helped people. Right. So that was the biggest impression that I found was this was happening. I'm sure this has been happening for thousands of years throughout the course of history, that spending time with other people, cooking, connecting, really did have, always has had tremendous benefit. 
the world today, I think the biggest difference is we are such a more, um, you know, creative world and open-minded space in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think the world is just more ready to accept that there can be different experiences, that there can be things more out of the box and really be receptive to that. And, you know, I joke with something as simple as like Instagram, um, you know, we laugh how, you know, how can social media or just photos floating around on the internet really make a difference? But I think it really does make people more receptive and open-minded to new ideas. And this practice, like many other kind of out-of-the-box practices, um, people are craving, you know, they're, they're looking for, they're excited about, they're wanting to have new and different experiences from what they were used to. Sure, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that, you know, we've talked about in some of the conversations that we've had offline is, you know, if you look back 20 odd years ago as well, when you think about play therapy or art therapy or music therapy, you know, these things in the clinical space, you know, were not really... I wouldn't say not in the mainstream, but kind of how you just described, maybe people didn't have the words for it. They didn't have the structure for it. There wasn't that, you know, maybe credentialing or, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it. And now, you know, it is, it is those kind of, you know, uh, therapies are, um, commonplace and accepted as part of the larger picture when it comes to mental and behavioral health. And and I think that, you know, culinary arts therapy, however it manifests itself is, is on that same trajectory. Yes. I, I believe so too. I truly hope so. Um, And I do think down the road in the future, we will see that. I, I I hope so too. Uh, So, uh, Tell me how, you know, your practice has evolved. Um, I know that you had, you know, mentioned that, you know, most of, if not all of your practice is focused on culinary arts therapy, but how did you kind of land on that after, you know, being in the, in the field for 20 years? Right. So that's a great question. Um, I think I've always been somebody who has kind of made my own rules and done things (laughs) in a different way. Um, you know, certainly as a kid or as a high schooler, it's kind of funny to look back and see how maybe that, you know, allowed for some challenges when you wanted to do things in a different way. But I think it served me well because that I've been able to create a practice really, you know, again, making my own rules, doing it my way. Yep. And, and that resonates with so many people. I think now more than ever, People are really realizing that they there's a need and um, it's it's socially acceptable. It's a good thing for people to really own their own um, their own sort of practice where it comes to mental health in terms of the services they get or how they help themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are advocating for themselves now more than ever, and I think it's amazing. I think it used to be years ago. You know, people would go to therapy and they would just say. I I need a therapist. And they didn't really know too much or ask too many questions about, you know, what sort of practices were the professionals using or what type of therapist were they? They were just kind of going and leaving it up to someone else. And now what I'm seeing, you know, and I think in many fields that people are really doing the research themselves. They want to know what's out there. They want to know some options. They're making more informed decisions about what's best for them and I think because of that, people are, again, they're, you know, I, I keep saying the word craving, which, you know, it's a funny word to use in the culinary therapy space. But I think that's really what it is, is that people really are looking for something specific and they're coming to this practice really eager and excited for something new. Well, and that really does help the therapeutic process, you know, yes. when you do have someone who is, you know, ready, willing, and able to engage in, you know, that, uh, helping partnership. Right. Um, and, and so that certainly does make it now we, we know as, you know, mental health professionals too, the, as, as you know, that n- that's not always the case. <laughs> people right. sometimes are mandated and there's other reasons why people, you know, show up, uh, you know, in, in, in therapy or, you know, seeking mental and behavioral health services, but it definitely does help. And I agree with you that I think people are really looking and doing their due diligence, um, I mean, there's more access to information. And I think, you know, more of a 
willingness to try different things and an acceptance and and um, you know like I think you also said people are you know looking for what's going to work for them and maybe less afraid to take a chance on something as opposed to like okay like I'm just going to sit on the couch now and like, I'm going to show up for my 45 minutes and you know hopefully magic will happen and you know whatever it is right. and that's the really cool thing I think about you know culinary arts therapy is that you know, the, the clients are engaged, like literally engaged yeah. in the process. Right. Um, so we've been chatting for, you know, 10 minutes or so, and we haven't actually told the listeners, um, and kind of by design, what is culinary arts therapy? <laughs> How do you define it? Right. <clears throat> That's some great question. Um, every, I tell people that every session I do, whether it's an individual session, family, group, they all look a little bit different because really it's about the needs of the client. It's about the needs and the goals of the client and what they're looking to get out of the experience. The part that looks the same is that there's always, I always start off by giving my clients a questionnaire, um, just like a, you know, more traditional intake. Intake. Form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking to collect certain basic information that helps me get to know the client. Why are they coming to me? What are they hoping to get out of the experience? Of course, asking some, you know, more specific food needs like allergies and food preferences, um, if there's a background of eating disorders of any kind, Mm. just general information. And once I have that, I'm able to really um, put together a plan for the session in terms of discussion goals, but also menu and recipes that we're going to be cooking. So um, I get to know the client. I put together that uh, proposal. The client gets to yay or nay and say, that looks great. No, I'd rather have this. So from the get-go, they're really taking an active role in their own therapeutic process, which I think is really empowering. Um, And then during the session, we cook and we talk. Um, Sometimes I'm cooking along with the client. Sometimes I'm not. If If it's a virtual session, I may be more focused on sitting you know, in front of my computer, really being present with the client so that I can talk and kind of navigate the discussion and the the direction for the session. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that discussion comes up through that cooking process. There's a lot of a lot of pieces that come out that are tied to memory. Um, the sense of smell is our greatest sense that is linked to memory. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that oftentimes when people are cooking, they're having these experiences where they're kind of transported to other times or experiences that are noteworthy in the therapeutic process. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're cooking, we're talking. And again, the part that makes this unique and it's not just a cooking class is my background as a therapist. So I'm able to use that conversation and help guide uh, the client through the process while they're cooking. Um, you know, I tell people often how you hear people talk about anyone who's who's a parent, uh, especially like a teenage or a young person, they understand how when you're in the car with your son or daughter <laughs> and you're driving, the teenager is always more likely to kind of open up and share more with the parent that's driving because there's there's almost like a distraction. Cooking is the same way. They're they mm-hmm. people so much more in a comfortable position, more willing and able to open up and to be vulnerable and to share because they're also engaged and focused on something else. So immediately it breaks down a lot of those barriers that I think in a traditional therapeutic setting takes much, much longer for that to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's almost like an equalizer in some ways yes. because you know, you're not having that power dynamic for lack of a better term. You're right. You're in it together, and I think that that I'm sure helps that therapeutic process along a little bit. Absolutely, um, and you're doing something so normal, right? Like we all right. cook at some point. Whether and again, the the recipes that I use, we're this is not like you know five star super fancy cooking. This is this is sometimes really sometimes we're just making a salad. Sometimes we're just chopping and slicing and mixing and doing very basic things. Because it's not about having, you know, uh, a super fancy meal at the end of it. It's the focus is on the process. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be one of the questions that I was going to ask next. And, and uh, it's about that process right. and some of the things you just mentioned, chopping and stirring and that sort of thing, because these kind of monotonous things that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of go into preparing a meal also can serve as a tool for grounding and mindfulness. How do you see, you know, uh, the cooking space as a as a tool for helping clients towards that mindfulness practice. Right. So just like, you know, probably when you say the word mindfulness, the first thing that comes to many people's minds is probably yoga. Or <laughs> right. Meditation. Meditation. Right? Yes. So and for many people that's that's an amazing practice. If you're more like me, that I have a hard time sitting still for long periods of time. Yes, I, I, I cannot stare at my navel. I am not that person. Yes, it's, it, it's, it can be difficult. It can be challenging. And it can actually turn an amazing practice into something that... Stressful. Yes, <laughs> stressful to people and also tells them like you're failing at something because you can't do this. So if you yep. take something else that for someone who really does want to focus more on something active... If you do something like cooking, you know, chopping a salad, there is mindfulness in that repetitive motion, much like meditation where the repetition happens in the breathing or the, the physical movements that you're holding. The repetition in cooking is the chopping, is the slicing. It's how you're holding your knife, how you're focused, how your body is standing while you're doing the work. Um, taking note of the size pieces that you're chopping. If you're cutting an onion and you want the pieces to all be somewhat uniform, it's there's something about that pattern of doing something over and over again that really allows the person to be present in the here and now and not be focusing on what happened yesterday or what's right. coming up tomorrow. And that's really, in a nutshell, that's what mindfulness is. It's being present in the here and now, which sounds so simple, but for so many of us, man, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think everybody can relate to that for sure. Um, you know, a couple of things I, I want to touch on that, you know, I think are, are probably a little bit more sensitive, but I think important to, to broach in this, in this, you know, context is you mentioned that one of them actually at the top, and that is, you know, when you do your intake, uh, addressing, you know, dietary, you know, uh, preferences and restrictions or whatever it might be, but eating disorders. Right. Um, you know, how do you approach a client? I mean, maybe they self-select and don't want to engage in a practice like this, but if you do find that there is, you know, a client with a history of, um, you know, disordered eating, right. um, how, how do you, uh, you know, approach and modify your practice to, um, you know, meet that client where they are? Right. Great question. So, yes, I think some of it, like you said, it it tends to be a self-selecting process. Someone, I think, who is actively struggling with uh, disordered eating probably isn't going to be drawn to this sort of practice. You know, they're they're not necessarily the person who's jumping out of their seats to say, oh, this right. is something I'm going to find enjoyable or self-soothing. This is going to be more of a challenge for them. And they may not be interested or able or ready to take this on. And, and that's okay. Um, just like any other therapeutic intervention, everyone's different and the different um, interventions are different for different people. And that's okay. You know, we're, we're meant to be different. And, you know, I, I never, I don't believe that this, like anything else in life needs to be forced on to anybody. So first and foremost, if it's not right for someone, that's okay. Maybe another point in time it will be, and it can be revisited. Um, But that's number one. Number two, um, it is amazing how food and eating can be complicated for many people. And mm-hmm. you know, we say disordered eating opposed to eating disorders because we all have different varying degrees of you know struggles. And I think it's really just really important for the person to be aware of where they are on the spectrum and, and so that I'm aware so that we can kind of go at it with sensitivity and compassion, just like anything else. Um, So it's really just something to be aware of and to kind of factor into the process, just like anything else. Um, Just like if somebody says they have a food allergy, so, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to include an ingredient that someone's allergic to. It's just something to be aware of and to be able to um, just work in in an appropriate way into the session. 
Right. No, that, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask about, and, and, you know, this is kind of one of practicality, but, but one that I think is important is access to ingredients and cost of ingredients. So, you know, if someone is coming to you, my assumption is you're providing them with the ingredients and the things that are necessary, but if they're at home, that's something that they're going to have to, you know, provide to themselves and go out there and buy on their own. Right. How, how do you find, you know, access and affordability play into a practice like this that isn't just, you know, showing up in an office, but that extra step and maybe that extra cost uh, associated with it? Right. So, uh, right. Everybody's different. You know, it's just that's one more example that really does highlight our differences and all the more reason why it's so important for me to get to know the client going into it. Because if somebody, you know, if their budget is $5 for groceries, the last thing that I would want to do is suggest a menu that's going to cost $50 to purchase the ingredients. Um, You know, that does become a barrier rather than um, kind of open that door and that open-mindedness to the session. So again, that's all, that's all part of the intake process and getting to know that's why I, you know, I really do start with the foods and the flavors and the dishes that people feel connected to Um, because it's not about what sounds good to me or what's appealing to me. It's about the client. Right. Of of course that, you know, that's, uh, you know, a principle of social work as well, you know, meeting, meeting the client where they are, you know, and, and, um, you know, identifying their strengths as well. Right. Um, so, so walk us through a typical session. So if when somebody fills out that, that questionnaire, that intake form, and they say, you know, they're, they're really interested in focusing on, um, you know, building patience. And I give them, I, you know, I list a whole like checkoff area. These are kind of the more common themes that we, that we talk about in sessions. These are the areas of focus. These are the areas of strength from this practice. And I ask people, you know, what is it that you think you would like to tackle? And so they kind of circle and they highlight those areas. And let's say somebody says, um, you know, I need to become a more patient person. I feel really stressed out and always in a rush. And I just don't feel like I'm, I'm patient and I'm able to enjoy what I'm doing. So I might say, I might suggest again, based on the, those preferences and, and needs, um, I might say, let's make bread. Um, there's certainly nothing that challenges those patient skills than anyone who has ever attempted to make a loaf of bread. Um, and again, being able to do that process together and point out the struggles and the challenges and also the successes. That's really, I think, where people realize they, there is a way to teach yourself how to do something, how to work on something, how to uh, become better at something, more proficient at something, and recognize where your, your challenges are, but also where you shine. Because a big piece of this, I think, is giving people the opportunity to feel the successes and truly, there is no, there is nothing that feels more amazing than making a fantastic loaf of bread and pulling that out of the oven and knowing you created that. You did that with your own hands. I totally agree. I also think that bread is a fantastic reward. Yes, yes. Well, you know, you get that warm bread. Oh my gosh, I can't think of anything better. Right. Um, now I can't let. I, I we have to talk about your curriculum. So. <laughs> Let's talk about your curriculum because, uh, you know, I started this conversation saying I think that you're a pioneer in this in this space of culinary arts therapy. And one of those reasons is because you have really, you know, put the time and effort into trying to create a consistent deliverable structure around, you know, and basically operationalizing culinary arts therapy. So, you know, without giving away all of your state secrets, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what went into developing this curricula and and how you hope it gets used. Yeah. So it's funny because the curriculum really got started a number of years ago. I, I, the first thing I did when I graduated from graduate school was I knew even if I wasn't going to make this a full-time job, I needed to make a website. I needed to have something out there in the world that showed people that this existed and that I was doing this and it was there, even if I had to come back to it at a later date. So because I've had a website for so many years now, 
um, I was lucky enough that when you search culinary therapy, cooking therapy, any, any terms like that's that. That's how I found you. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I pop up there, which is awesome. And what I was finding was a good amount of people were reaching out to me and saying, this is awesome. I love what you're doing. I want to do this too. How can I do it? And for so many years, my answer was, oh, gee, I really don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm just winging it here and I'm creating something that works for me and my practice, but I don't know. I don't, I don't have anything for you. And then I kind of be after so many years of kind of getting sick of that answer because I am somebody that loves helping and I always want to say yes and I always want to jump in. Yep. I decided yep. I got to change this. I have to create something that instead of telling people, you know, being so disappointed and saying I can't help you or I can't offer you anything, I needed to create something that I could offer people. And again, after so many years doing this, and I was able to see the patterns and the um, the process that I was creating kind of really without really realizing that that's what I was doing, I was able to create this curriculum. So it took me a good couple of years to really be able to create the process, put it into words, create you know a, a physical piece of a book that I could offer people. And I did it. And I, it's been amazing that when people do reach out to me, like, you know, um, and say, I want to do this, you know, what do you have? And I can say, well, actually, I, I do have something. Um, and I have something that I've created that gives people the foundation to get started, but also offers enough flexibility to make it their own. Because just like our clients are all different, so are clinicians. And in yep. order for this process to really work for both the client and the professional, it, there has to be wiggle room in there to make it your own and to make it work for those individual needs. So that's what I did. <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it, it. I am so excited for what the future holds for you, for you know this type of practice. Where do you hope this all goes? I hope, like we talked about earlier, how once upon a time people would hear the words music therapy and dance therapy and art therapy. And, you know, it was something, okay, you've heard of, but you're not really too sure about. And now they are, they are fully licensed, regulated fields of professionals of amazing people doing amazing work. And that's my hope for culinary therapy, that one day those, that term will become just as commonplace as all the other amazing practices that exist and are out there for people to, learn from and benefit from and help them become better, healthier people. I am totally in agreement. I'm very, very excited and so happy that we've connected and hope to be part of this, you know, process to advocate for the growth of culinary art therapy. Julie Ohana, thank you so much for joining us today from Michigan. Thank you so much for having me and talking about this amazing topic. After the break, I'll welcome our next guest, licensed social worker Courtney Fields Futurelli, about her work using food as a tool to improve mental health. Serving soup face-to-face -to, -face to customers across the country at Zoop Eatery locations for over two decades, the Zoop Good Really Good team learned people's preferences. And they used this as a secret sauce to create a collection of super premium soups, flavor-forward broths, and gourmet broth concentrates. Available in nine varieties, ranging from chicken pot pie and spicy chicken gelada to portobello mushroom bisque and butternut squash, the clean ingredient soups are perfect for enjoying a comfort meal in minutes. The broth lineup, which includes chicken, beef, veggie, and seafood broths, plus bone broths, features rich, simmered all-day flavor. For even more versatility, Zoop offers culinary concentrates, which easily boost the taste of casseroles, pastas, and rice dishes. All products are packaged in recyclable and reusable glass jars, free of artificial ingredients, preservatives, and GMOs. They're available at your favorite retailers across the country and through Instacart, plus online at zoopbroth.com, walmart.com, and Amazon. Browse recipes and learn more at zoopbroth.com or by following at zoopgoodreallygood on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. Before the break, I had a chance to speak with Julie Ohana, a clinical social worker based in Michigan who has operationalized the concept of culinary arts therapy. Now I'm joined by Courtney Fields Futurelli. Courtney is also in the Great Lakes region, but up in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. 
She's a licensed social worker and the founder of Field and Flower Therapy. Well, we are so happy to have Courtney on the program. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Capri. This is awesome. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, such an important topic and one that, you know, is maybe not familiar to a lot of our listeners. Um, but we, we want to talk about your story. Um, tell me how you decided to first, you know, um, pursue therapy as, you know, your career path. Yeah, so I um, came into it kind of untraditionally. So I'm a social worker. Uh, I took a undergrad class in social work while I was planning on actually becoming a teacher. That was my pathway and I, my intended pathway, uh, but took a social work class in my undergrad and loved it and thought it was so interesting and so fascinating and it just resonated with me. And then I discovered that I would be able to do a uh, bachelor's of social work concurrently with my undergrad. And I decided to, to just go ahead and do that. And it just kind of led me down this pathway of pursuing social work as a career. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks don't realize, and, and you, you and I have had a number of conversations, you know, outside of, of this interview, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm a licensed social worker and I have an yeah. MSW, um, you know, but I'll, sometimes I don't think so many of my listeners know that because of, yeah. of my, my different roles, but people don't know how many types of, uh, you know, professional paths a social worker can have. And, you know, people, I think, often associate casework, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. But um, there's a lot of different ways you can you can do social work practice. And and for you, you know, it's it's clinical, right? More more mental health therapy. Yeah, like I've had, I mean, I've had a number of different roles throughout my career. I've been practicing social work for almost 18 years now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first started, th that was actually one of the one of the reasons why I thought social work would be so interesting is because, and I remember saying that to folks at the time, I would say, you know, I just, there's so many different jobs I can have. And I really like mm -hmm. that idea. I like the idea that if I, you know, was felt stuck or felt like I wanted to pursue something different, then I would definitely have that opportunity, uh, given the fact that social work is so vast. You can work in hospitals, you can work in casework, you can work in grassroots kind of advocacy work, you can do therapy and, and psychotherapy. Um, and there's a lot of different kind of realms that social workers work in. So for me, that was pretty exciting. And I think probably ominous as to like why <laughs> I, uh, I pursued something that was non-traditional in the end. Yeah. And, and the way that you've approached your own practice is, you know, relatively non-traditional as well. And that For is sure. really the, the theme of, of, you know, this episode and, and conversations with the guests that we have today is, uh, you know, this concept of integrating different modalities into that therapeutic practice. And in your case, and in our previous guest case, Julie, uh, you know, integrating food and mindfulness and cooking and baking, um, mm -hmm. you know, into that, um, you know, area in which you're working with clients that, you know, have goals to improve their mental health and well-being, but you're doing it in a somewhat a non-traditional way. So to you, how did you kind of find your way there to integrating food and cooking and baking into your practice? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I started up my, the main um, portion of my career, my main background was working in the school system as a school-based social worker. Mm -hmm. And I spent a number of years in that role. So just over a decade, about 11 years in that role. And throughout that time, uh, you know, I was drawn to different ways of helping support students and helping support students in sort of like a non-traditional um, way. So, you know, traditional kind of social worker therapy sessions or even case management looks like a meeting right? Like it looks mm -hmm. like sitting in a room and having a meeting and talking about things face to face. So for play therapy, you know, we understand that that is one of the best practices in order to be able to really connect with kids. And so I always pursued, you know, in my work as a school social worker, we would integrate play into our sessions, but we were time limited. You know, school social work is often putting out fires and trying to manage, do a lot of case management. And so from the therapy perspective, I found that I wasn't really able to dive in as deeply as I would like to with kids. We just didn't have the opportunity because we were managing a lot of different things. And so I thought, 
you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to have a private practice one day? Um, so I pursued part-time my master's degree. Um, that was one of the, you know, the licensure sort of re- recommendations or requirements in my, in my province as well. And so I pursued a part-time master's degree. And then after that, um, ended up kind of, you know, ha- thinking about it in the back of my mind, but not really knowing where, what direction it would take. And it kind of took my own journey in healing. Um, I lost my dad in 2019. Um, and during that grieving process, I found myself, you know, returning to baking. Baking had always been something that I had loved to do, um, especially the cake decorating, kind of cupcake decorating type of the artistic side of it was really kind of the most, you know, impactful for me. It's something been a hobby for many, many years. I worked in bakeries as a university student, high school student. So that kind of stuff, you know, was always in the back of my mind or that kind of hobby or pursuit. But it was my own journey kind of through grief and rediscovering baking and launching myself into, you know, meaning making through my hands and and what I was working with um, in order to be that I decided that it would be, you know, such an interesting way to integrate it into work, into into my work with clients. That's that's just wonderful that you were able to, you know, use your own personal, you know, grief journey, as you've just said, to you know, uh, integrate those tools to, to help, to help others. So uh, how long have you been, um, well, let me actually back up. Let me ask you this. Um, when did you start, uh, integrating, you know, the sort of bake therapy into your practice? So it was, it was interesting. So I had been, I had, like I said, I had kind of you know, been rediscovering, you know, baking as a hobby, um, and then decided I would open a little, you know, on the side, a little home bakery, making like cupcakes and cakes and cookies for for people. And so that I thought was as far as it was going to go. I didn't really, I, you know, I didn't really anticipate that it would go much beyond that. Um, but it was, you know, kind of googling and searching and looking and uh, into the field of expressive arts and culinary art therapy and trying to figure out, is there anybody who's actually integrating these two things, right? Like, especially I think given the fact that, you know, you know, my own journey to this started at the end of 2019 and then 2020 hit. And yep. that was when I opened my little part-time, you know, home bake, home-based bake shop called, I named it Wildflower Fields after my dad, my dad's last, or our maiden name is Fields, my maiden name is Fields. And so, you know, tried to, tried to do that, but then, you know, the pandemic hit and it was quite interesting because there was a lot of, you know, talk around at that time, talking about making sourdough bread and, and, you know, sitting in our kitchens and, you know, and it led me down this rabbit hole of trying to find research, any type of research that would have supported the fact that cooking and baking and, you know, creating with our hands in the kitchen is something that is a therapeutic modality that has been used in therapy practices or in types of therapeutic programming you know, for generations, just in a non-formal way. But I was trying to also find if there were folks out there who were doing it in a traditional way. So what did you, what did you find? Because, you know, I, I've, I've looked at this myself and yeah, I've looked and, you know, there's a community out there, but it's, it's, I find that it was very difficult to ascertain, you know, what is out there. And there does seem to be a lack of formal training, you know, and research and peer reviewed journal articles and all those fun things that you look for. Yeah. So what did you find? I found mostly um, in the field of occupational therapy, to be honest, Mm. a lot of it was in the field of occupational therapy. Some of it was in the field of like, they added like people, folks who would add a cooking component to an intervention that was holistically trying to improve people's mental health if they were, you know, it was a program for, you know, marginalized um, folks who are struggling with mental health. And this was like an inpatient program, they would have a cooking component or, you know, mostly from a life skills based type of angle, or from a um, behavior activation type of angle, right, we're trying to like get folks out of their depressive mood. And by using your hands and doing something much in the realm of like expressive arts therapy, art therapy, play therapy, in that sort of type of vein, um, that that was what 
it was just an adjunct activity, to be honest, not not necessarily the main focus. So there really is a lack of research. There really is a lack of formalized type of um, discovery around this to date. But I do believe that it's grow, it's going to grow and, and people are going to catch on. Um, the other part of my practice has also been interested in echo, echotherapy or Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up because I was going to I was going to ask you about that too. Hold that thought because I'm going to I want I want to ask you about that separately, but bef- before we shift gears into kind of the horticulture therapy aspect because this is, you know, ultimately about food. Um so l- walk me through what a a typical session with you would look like as you integrate, you know, a baking therapy session. Yeah. So I mean, to to answer that is is kind of to think about it from the realm of play therapy or art therapy. Mm-hmm. And also to think about the fact that my main goal when I'm working with clients is generally people are coming for a personal mental health issue, an interpersonal issue with like family members or friends, and they have a main goal, right? And so through that, I'm doing one of two things. So I use the kitchen. We have a therapy kitchen on site that is, you know, very warm, decorated, very much like, you know, a regular kitchen that you would go to a fr- with a friend or go to a family member's home. Um, and we use that kitchen. Primarily, our focus is mostly on baking versus like uh, cooking as a modality. So we do use much more of a baking kind of approach. And what that looks like is like we are in the kitchen talking just like we would with a, a psychotherapy session or a counseling session. But we, while we are doing that, we are sort of in tandem baking together. And mm-hmm. there's been times where for sure in a planned intervention approach, I've, I've been able to integrate different types of um, recipes, different types of skills. Um, you know, for example, if I'm looking or if I'm working with somebody who is struggling with anxiety and struggling with, you know, kind of like these mm-hmm. persistent thoughts of perfectionism, baking can be a really great, you know, test to that, a really great exposure yep. therapy to that mm-hmm. because, you know, uh, and things go wrong, right? Or the recipe doesn't, you know, we can't measure the ingredients properly and or something falls. And it's like practicing those skills while we are in the session is just an extra added benefit. Um, but we really see it from my perspective, I see the environment as a secondary therapist. Um, mm-hmm. so be, being in the kitchen, I, you know, and I, like I said, there is not tons of formal research to back this up. So it is much much more anecdotal and it's leaning on the field of expressive arts therapy to kind of back that Mm -hmm. up from from an evidence-based perspective. However, anecdotally, myself and the other therapists that work on on my team, we have countless stories of how it's interesting how we've had a session with uh, with a client in a set in, um, you know, in a regular setting in one of our other offices, our regular kind of offices. And then if we move into the kitchen, all of a sudden, this client, because we're side by side, we're standing together at the counter, we're standing together at the table, we're not having that sustained eye contact, all of a sudden, there's something about that atmosphere that just creates a better rapport, it creates a better opportunity to talk that just you couldn't necessarily get while you're sitting in a room with someone. And so when you say ask like that question about a typical session, it is kind of hard to answer because, you know, it, it, it is what you imagine it to be that we are in a kitchen and we are, you know, just choosing on a recipe, whether we've chosen a recipe beforehand from an, from an intervention perspective, or we're just choosing a recipe on site, our kitchen is stocked with, you know, pretty much the basics of different types of recipes that you would want to bake. Right. Um, but we're, you're choosing a recipe and we are getting into that. And then once the, uh, you know, whatever we've chosen to create is in the oven then we sit at the table and we kind of reflect a little bit and talk a little bit deeper about what we are coming to talk about. And so I just find that it's a, it's a dual purpose session. It's not only are you getting the therapy component with your psychotherapist, but you're all your counselor, but you're also getting that hands-on type of like activity that can be really great with for anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms, or also interpersonal kind of like relationship issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, what you're describing is, I think, very intuitive in many ways. 
And um, it seems like it would lend itself to, you know, couples therapy or family therapy. Do you do, or group, do you do any of that um, in the kitchen? Yeah, we've done, we've conducted family sessions in the kitchen, um, which has been really lovely to see, right? And it's more, it's like a, such a guided kind of activity while we're talking. And we kind of do it the same sort of way that we would, we would do the individual session with just a therapist and a client. And so we're choosing a recipe. We're starting to get into it. You know, they, they, they're practicing communicating. They're practicing kind of like that back and forth, pass me this, pass me that type of a thing. And then while we're doing that, I'm gently sort of prompting with questions and kind of guiding the conversation back to the topic at hand about why they're there. But I just find it such a more natural way to try and build rapport, um, mm-hmm. especially because coming to therapy is hard, right? Like this is, it, is, it can feel quite awkward. It can feel kind of, you know, intimidating. And so I find that by adding this kitchen component, it's really broken down some of that barriers and some of that, you know, client expert role um, and really brought us back to a very approachable type of relationship, which I love. I love that about it. Sure. Do, do you suggest this to, a, you know, an existing, you know, client or therapeutic relationship or do people say, Hey, uh, I want to try one of these baking therapy sessions or I is think, it a little bit of both? A little bit of both, to be honest. And I think oftentimes we don't, we don't suggest doing the baking, um, the baking therapy session from the very first session. Cause I think we like to still do, you know, a meet and greet assessment, trying to get like some more history and background. So we always recommend sure. that we have a traditional type of session where we're sitting in a room and getting a lot of that kind of assessment questions, a lot of the kind of intervention plan so that we can really do it uh, or conduct the, the baking therapy session in a more informed way. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to get to some of those questions while we are in the active activity of baking. Um, so we always suggest that first. And then we move into um, some recommendations around how that can be a really good integrative approach to whatever type of therapy modality we're using, whether we're using like a cognitive behavioral therapy approach or an acceptance commitment therapy approach, mm-hmm. or oftentimes it's emotion-focused family therapy, that especially mm-hmm. when we're looking working with groups and families. Um, but that is generally kind of the process. Yeah. I, I'm just curious. Do you, do you do any narrative therapy as well? Yes, it just seems there's like, so much narrative. Yes. It, it just seems like this is so conducive to narrative therapy. And I'm sorry to like social work nerd out on you too, but like, I just am like, oh, it this is, is such a narrative it's so therapy. Narrative. It is because it's stories, right? Like it's people's yeah, exactly. stories and people, I find that, you know, there's been such a really nice um, blend of, 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 bereavement work uh, with mm. narrative with a narrative approach because we're bringing in recipes. Right. It connects you back. Connects yeah. you back. And you know, as well as I know, as well as anybody knows that being in the kitchen and, you know, using your senses and having that, um, they're, they're really powerful, uh, ca- like kind of capsules of our memory, right? We, we know that we can go right back there. And so when we're, when we're smelling the smells and we're mixing and we're, you know, engaging in that. So I just find that, yeah, for sure. Narrative is a huge component of it as well. Well, I'll, I'll try to stop nerding out on the social work side. <laughs> Geeking um, out. Yeah, totally, totally. But I, I want to bring up a couple things that you had previously referenced. Um, one is the horticulture therapy, because I do mm-hmm. think it's important, even though it's not food, obviously, you know, it is a, a, a different type of approach that I think is worth at least kind of mentioning just to show the the complexity and the depth and breadth of the variety of types of unique intervention approaches that you have there. Yeah. Um, for people that are, again, not familiar with this, what is this kind of like horticulture approach. therapy yeah. outdoor approach? Yeah. So so our practice name is Fields and Flower Therapy. And flower is like the baking flower. Obviously, it's like a little on word. F-L-O-U-R. F-L-O-U-R, I always say. And we really, those the two approaches that we embrace in our practice with our with our clinicians is having the regular type of, you know, psychotherapy sessions like you would imagine in the room. So we have two rooms, two rooms in our clinic that are just typical type of uh, rooms. We also have therapy kitchen, like I was referencing. But another big component of it is having the opportunity to do walk and talk or um, eco-based or nature-based sessions where we will often meet with clients on a local trail or park, conservation areas, um, 
uh, outdoor location. And we do the same sort of therapy that you would do in the room, much like we were doing in the baking kind of sessions, but out, outdoors. And so oftentimes it's a walk and talk model, which is gaining in huge popularity across oh, Eastern yeah. Ontario, uh, where I am. And, um, and we use that as an approach. So instead of being, you know, sitting in a room and sitting in the session, I often will, will, will tell clients that, you know, you're getting two therapists, you're getting the environment as a therapist, because being outside in nature, you know, having that active walking session is really good for your physical body, it's good for your mental, you know, your mental health, and you're getting that, you know, act behavior activation while you're actually uh, walking together. Um, so we just find it's a really nice setting. It's a really nice tool to also have that side by side walking motion. So it's not the sustained eye contact that can be quite intimidating for, pe- for, for people. Um, and it's just a really nice um, way to conduct a session as well. That is, I mean, I I think everybody can attest to the fact that being outside in nature is really, you know, an uplifting uh, experience that can ground you, that can promote mindfulness, that can promote calm and help anxiety Mm -hmm. and just a whole host of things, which, and, and, you know, one thing that I, I think either you may have mentioned to me at some point, or I, I had heard somewhere that the province of Ontario, I think, uh, offers prescriptions for this kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm I'm one of I'm part of this program that is has been spearheaded um, by Parks Canada. And so what it is is it's a it, it's exactly that Parks prescription. And so the cool thing so about cool. that is that mental health practitioners, physicians, and nurses can, uh, if they're registered under the program and they're they're a member in the program, they have the capability of prescribing time in nature to their patients or clients. And what that does is it allows that client or patient to have a free Parks Canada pass for a year to encourage them to, you know, to uptake this prescription. So we're basically saying that time in nature, there's so much evidence and research, you know, unlike the baking therapy realm, or culinary arts, the art therapy realm, there has been tons of research done across, you know, across different uh, countries and different areas around how the benefits of being outside for our mental health and for our physical health. And so in that vein, we are recognizing that and we, we offer a parks prescription where they get well, we're recommending 20, 20 minutes in nature three times a week. And what uh, what folks will gain from that is that they will get a Parks Canada Fast that will will help the accessibility to these natural spaces in uh, in Canada and Ontario. And then um, and our clients can get that. And so it's been a wonderful program for me to be a part of. I've been able to provide Parks prescriptions to some of my clients, which has been such a great added benefit. What has the response been? Oh, my clients love it. <laughs> my clients love it. They, it, it's a, it, it works in two ways. To, to, to be quite frank, you know, they, they get a free uh, Parks Canada pass, which you know, there's certain parks in our region that are Ontario parks, and certain that are uh, national parks, the national parks of um, of Canada, and so they get free admission for a year to any of those parks. So it's it's it started a conversation of them trying to explore their net, their their local area to try and get themselves out of their out of their houses you know it gives them a good excuse to do this a good excuse to travel and to try and you know find these natural parks that they have free passes for but it also just generates that conversation amongst like their family members and the people in their lives around like why we should do this why should we we should be in nature and i love that part of it that it's kind of extending the therapy session beyond what we're doing in our office or in our clinic and it's really you know um uh, motivating people to be able to do that on their own uh, throughout the rest of the week so we love that that I mean, I, I don't see how you could possibly go wrong. And that's just no. such, <laughs> such an innovative program. It is. And yeah. which which brings me to kind of my last kind of group of questions. Yeah. Speaking of innovation mm-hmm. um, and something else that you mentioned a little bit before in our conversation, and that is the wildflower fields baking yeah. um, and and how that has evolved for you from a, a sort of home you know, based Big baking shop. operation to something much more into a social enterprise. So yeah. how has that bakery and everything that goes with it complemented the work that you're doing in the um, uh, fields yeah. and flower 
therapy, therapy practice. service. Yeah. yeah. So, so I found myself, you know, as on this journey of like opening a private practice, you know, when I decided to open the private practice originally, I thought it was just going to be me, um, you know, doing these innovative sort of approaches or these, you know, out of the box approaches, as I like to say, um, and what kind of transpired as it unfolded, and it very much naturally did unfold as time went by, is I had this, you know, little home bake shop that I was making cookies on the weekend for, for people. And then I also had this therapy practice. And when I decided to um, launch the therapy practice, I very quickly was understanding that, you know, um, that that was there was a need there was obviously a need especially post pandemic we've seen you know quite a, a huge need for mental health services and okay. so i you know very shortly realized that i could leave the school board job and be able to um work full-time in the private practice. But, you know, my social work roots, my, my, my student-driven um, kind of focus was, you know, always a niggling in the back of my mind. And one of the things that I found was a huge barrier. So first of all, a barrier to private practice in my region is the fact that it's private pay or through insurance. Yep. And which is a whole other conversation. I know that's a whole other for, conversation. For, but, yeah. but, but for, but for our American listeners, and we do have listeners yeah. across North America, cause we're on Sirius XM and, yeah. you know, we're obviously based in the United States, but for our American listeners, not everything is paid for in Canada. So that is yeah. something just needs to no, be understood by listeners because people yeah. just don't know that that that's a thing. Yeah. So for mental health services, in at least in my region in Ontario, is is that if you're looking for counseling services and you're you don't you don't have the means or the ability to pay, you would typically go to your doctor's office and try to get assigned to a mental health a clinician there or use your private care benefits through your workplace um, or, you know, try and sign on to one of the hospital or public health based programs or services. And oftentimes, you know, much, much similar to other regions, you know, we have a long wait list for that, or there are very, there are limitations around the amount of sessions you can get, you know, the, the weight that you're waiting for these programs can sometimes be like six months to a year. Um, mm -hmm. And then also, you know, the school based services, because I, you know, came from that, that area, is that they're limited in terms of how much they can actually provide or how long they can provide that for. So, you know, private care is obviously an option. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a great option. But for some people who don't have the insurance benefits for that, or the means to provide pay out of pocket for a session, it can be quite inaccessible. And so when I was making or thinking about pursuing private practice as the main part of my career, one of the things that was niggling in the back of my mind is what about for the folks who can't pay for it? What about for some mm -hmm. of my students that I would have worked at that they, they could, there's no way that they could access private care uh, or a private care clinician. And so this idea in the back per was percolating in the back of my mind about like holding a bake sale, <laughs> you know, how, what if I held a bake sale and, you know, donated the proceeds to, to, to have um, a lower cost cost fund for clients who can't pay, right? You know, that's a win-win situation, you know, like I can still pay the therapist or still pay myself, but then also be able to provide a lower cost option for people who are waiting on a wait list or who can't pay um, through insurance or out of pocket. And so this idea sort of percolated about having a, a big changing the focus of wildflower fields from, you know, a home-based bake shop into something that would be a little bit more. And so I, I was reading up on social enterprise, did a lot of research. It kind of naturally evolved over time. But what we have as for wildflower fields is a basic, it's a bake shop. So it is a little bake shop that's attached to our practice. That's right beside our practice that offers um, baking, baked goods. We have uh, fresh flowers. We have mental health resources like books and workbooks, journals, some self-care items like uh, locally sourced candles and soaps and uh, fidget toys and a lot of different things that are all within the realm of like nature, baking and mental health self-care. And oh, all, the, all the proceeds of those items go into what we call the Growing Kindness Fund. So that fund allows clients to access 12 sessions at a reduced rate. They get an 85% discount, um, which is wonderful. So our clients can access, you know, the still the same kind of like different or out of the box type of therapy that we're providing in the therapy practice, but they don't necessarily need to use insurance or paying out of pocket to be able to use that. And that's the purpose of our, of our social enterprise. 
I, I just love it. And I think that it's something that a lot of people can learn from, um, you know, as mental health services are in high demand, but are also high priced. And, yeah. you know, regardless of where you are in the world, it seems that, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, out of reach in, in many people's budgets. Um, so it's definitely something for uh, other practices uh, uh, to, to think about and to, to take a look at, at the work that you do. If people want to learn more about your practice and your social enterprise, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can find us on Instagram, social media, um, uh, under Wildflower Fields. And again, it's like the baking flower. <laughs> Wildflower Fields uh, is the Instagram handle or www.wildflowerfields.com is our social enterprise site. And then on the uh, practice, the therapy practice side, it's fieldsandflowertherapy.ca for our therapy practice, as well as our Instagram handle. And uh, we have a TikTok as well under Wildflower Fields. So yeah. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> TikTok for the kids. TikTok for I, the I kids, definitely... right? De definitely like not not cool enough for TikTok, but um, <laughs> Courtney Fields Futurelli, I want to be you when I grow up. Uh, thank you so much for you. joining the show and for sharing your really incredible journey in innovating, uh, you know, aspects of culinary art therapy uh, there on the other side of the Great Lakes in Hamilton, Ontario. Thank you so much, Capri. It's been lovely to speak to you. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.